0: Is this the future? Artificial intelligence that tells surgeons what to do? AI that can diagnose what ails you? Will we even need healthcare providers anymore?
1: These technologies are uh, value neutral, but their usage is not necessarily value neutral. Uh, Bad people can use good technology for bad purposes.
2: Here to help us understand the future of healthcare is Chris Ross, the Chief Information Officer at the Mayo Clinic and a board member of the global nonprofit that serves the health IT community.
1: I think everyone is trying to figure out how do we take advantage of this stuff that could very well be transformational without doing damage. And I think everyone that I know is taking a responsible stance of trying to figure out how do we learn by application of these technologies.
2: And this is Conversations on Healthcare. Well, Chris,
0: welcome to Conversations on Healthcare.
1: Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Margaret.
0: And full disclosure, none of these questions were developed by using chat GPT. They're (laughs) they're all, all ours and original, so. Uh, in the, in the new level of disclosure, uh, you know, Chris, you're, you're helping lead the tech revolution uh, we're all experiencing right now. So let's, let's start with an overview. Uh, generative AI is a type of artificial intelligence that can create a wide variety of data, such as text and videos. It's ChatGPT's underlying technology. Can you tell our listeners who's behind it and how does it work?
1: Well, large language models are, have been developed over a number of years by various uh, companies in different um, threads. So there's a clearly a large thread that came out of OpenAI and its sponsorship from um, Microsoft. That led to ChatGPT. Uh, Google has uh, similar kinds of models in things called uh, Palm, for example, and Meta has Llama. Um, And then there's many other um, things that go by similar acronyms from uh, smaller companies as well.
2: Well, there are reports uh, that healthcare systems, of course, uh, interest of all of ours, uh, are eager to use chat uh, but also a realization that right now, it and other AI chatbots uh, are not good at everything. And one, somewhat to my surprise, was that they're not good at spatial reasoning and math tasks. What's your take on this, and where are we going with this innovation, and is that going to be resolved, do you think? Will those concerns be resolved in the near future?
1: The technology is advancing very rapidly. But look, for right now, Even though these models work well on domains in addition to language, they're primarily being applied to language. All of these models are highly fluent. They're very good writers and speakers. They speak in full paragraphs. They use good grammar. They don't leave hanging sentence fragments. But they hallucinate. In the absence of clarity, sometimes they will simply make things up. And that's where at least one class of problem arises, in addition to the other kinds of problems um, that you indicated. uh, There's a lot yet to be done before these are ready to be exposed for clinical care.
0: And yet, uh, organizations like the World Health Organization recently issued a statement expressing concern about AI in the healthcare. It said that uh, caution would normally be exercised for any new technology but it's not being exercised consistently with, uh, with the new chat uh, GPT and other AI uh, tools. And, uh, and we've also heard across the board that uh, a number of tech leaders have come out and called for a six-month uh, moratorium on the AI development. Not sure that's practical, but certainly it's a uh, reflective of the societal fears. Uh, tell us, uh, should we be worried?
1: Well, perhaps worried. Um, You know, these technologies are uh, value neutral, but their usage is not necessarily value neutral. Uh, Bad people can use good technology for bad purposes. So I think there's a, a, a very robust debate about whether these technologies should be regulated, whether they can be regulated, and if they are regulated how would you do that so to a large degree um, these are being managed at this time in a coalition of the willing if you will now there's different regulatory and even statutory regimes that are emerging in different places and we'll see what happens but at the moment this is a bit of a we're being governed by our good conscience kind of world
0: i noted that the uh, senate uh, was holding hearings the other day uh, thinking through some of the issues that seem to be more coming up to speed on the on the issues. Are are policymakers capable of um, managing through these issues in such a new area of technology?
1: That's a good question. I mean it's a huge lift for even you know right. the most capable of policymakers. And as you know, we're living in a somewhat polarized world nowadays where reason is short and heat <laughs> is high. Um, I, I don't know. I think I'm somewhat persuaded by the argument that says that um, if one national, you know, Europe or uh, uh, the United States uh, regulates, um, that's not going to stop activity in other countries as well. And these technologies are fairly borderless. Um, you know, the things that will come into place will be things like liability law that, you um, even though we may not be able to regulate what happens with AI in other parts of the world, in the U.S. there could be liability laws that would hold someone responsible for uh, appropriate and ethical use of these technologies.
2: Well, Chris, you're on the board at HIMSS, uh, H-I-M-S-S, for those uh, outside this uh, arena, which stands for Healthcare Information and Management Systems Society, uh, represents the big players uh, in health IT. Uh, you know, health IT has been around for a long time, I'd say, you know, the last 25 years in particular, we've seen the transformation from a rarity in practices to pretty full adoption across the country. And if there's big innovations coming, I'm pretty sure they're on your agendas uh, and talking about it. What are some of the big uh, innovations that you're tracking uh, beyond uh, what we've just talked about that you think is really going to take healthcare forward in terms of health information, health IT? Sure.
1: So Hims is a membership organization with 122, 125,000 members around the world in about five dozen chapters and communities. And those chapters and communities are active with their own local areas of interest. And Hims, in particular has been very active in Europe in the last several years. And we've been really pleased to see all the thought leadership coming from our colleagues uh, in Europe. I think everyone is trying to figure out, how do we take advantage of this stuff that could very well be transformational without doing damage? And I think everyone that I know is taking a responsible stance of trying to figure out how do we learn by application of these technologies into things that might not be in the clinical space, might be the administrative space. Um, and that might be things like, in my organization, we're evaluating whether our IT help desk could be um, enabled with chat tools, for example, or maybe other kinds of things that aren't rendering a clinical judgment um, or guiding someone in a direction. Um, but helping us with small utility tasks that make our lives easier and allow human beings to augment, be augmented with those tools so, they can focus on the things that human beings are best at, human being clinicians, that is, and what they're best at in treating patients.
0: You know, speaking of your organization, Chris, uh, we're seeing uh, from Mayo a platform that breaks down language barriers and allows for sharing of large and complex types of data. Uh, I take it the goal here is to detect diseases early on. I'm wondering if you could just fill us in on ha- how all of this is happening and. What are you seeing as uh, uh, any of your uh, positive results?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple of things I could highlight. I'll be very brief. One is we're applying AI tools, and not just these generative AI or large language models, but some of the other models that have been used for a while, like convolutional neural networks and, and deep learning models and so on, to things like diagnostic and identification of heart disease, of uh, neurological diseases through speech patterns, other things like that. And we found that we can get to pretty high level of diagnostic um, accuracy. And there is a um, regulated process of bringing those technologies through the FDA approval process as software as medical device. Um, We're also using it for a variety of, uh, as I said, helper tasks. So for things like uh, dictation, for example, You know, now it's become commonplace. We're all using GPS. We're all using dictation. Uh, Mm -hmm. But those are AI-based tools that let us work more effectively and with uh, less hassle. Mayo Clinic has a broad um, uh, approach under our CEO's uh, vision uh, to create a world of uh, Mayo Clinic platform, um, which is a, a fairly sophisticated idea about how can we become a platform that is A place where these ideas can be transacted for the benefit of many people beyond our brick and mortar walls who might want to uh, who can benefit from Mayo Clinic care uh, where they can't come to one of our facilities. So there's a a variety of ways in which we are enabling these digital cures and digital diagnostics uh, and spreading them uh, beyond uh, the confines of our traditional uh, four walls.
0: You seem to be of the size where you could develop your own language learning model. Any any effort in that area?
1: Maybe so. You know, the ones that have gotten the most um, public uh, view have required tens or hundreds right. of millions of dollars to build. Uh-huh. Uh, there's some really intriguing evidence that says that highly focused large language models could be trained on smaller data sets and have a high level of fidelity. They would just have to be more for focused use as opposed to more broad use like chat gpt is intended to answer any question from anyone
0: more of a proprietary system that could focus in on on might, might be of interest thanks so much
2: yeah. possibly well, we appreciate uh, we appreciate your national uh, spread, and certainly you're providing expert guidance to many healthcare organizations out here on the East Coast in our uh, neck of the woods, and appreciate that talent being shared. Uh, but I want to ask you, uh, Chris, uh, with your your uh, long and deep experience with electronic health records, uh, public health emergency is over; been deemed to be over the emergency period anyway, with COVID. Uh, And we learned so much throughout the pandemic, but we also saw how many weaknesses we had in our healthcare system. And while people did an amazing, extraordinary job of stepping up to the challenge, we saw how hard it was to share information. Uh, Electronic health records uh, often still can't share information with each other, and sharing information with government, public health uh, entities was really challenging. What does Hims and and you personally I think it's going to take to achieve universal interoperability for healthcare data and health records?
1: So you're absolutely right that we saw lots of weakness and in some cases failure points with public health, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have systematically underinvested in public health infrastructure for decades. Um, People might think of public health as being like the Centers for Disease Control, as if there is some national authority. And in fact, the CDC does amazing things, but most public health work is really delivered at a state level and in some states at a county level. And uh, they've just not gotten along long end of the financial stick over a long time. So infrastructure was lacking. I think the majority of the problems that we have seen are slightly less technical than they are sociological, financial, political, and so on. Um, We have the means to encapsulate data in effective ways, um, to make it uh, readable in multiple locations. We figured out how to develop new protocols for managing uh, uh, that data, and it's now uh, been widely adopted the remaining problems are are a little bit more operational political financial sociological not to say that those are easier in some ways they're harder in almost every way they're harder uh, and i think that's where our focus should be next
0: well it's a great observation about the public health system of its spread it's not just located in atlanta uh it's it's all over the country you know i was thinking about uh, the role that you have you mentioned your great uh, ceo leadership and always focused in on both the mission and the margin, right, <laughs> of the work that we're doing. So tell us a little more about uh, tech's ability to save money, and are, are we getting cost savings that have, uh, have been promised? And uh, I think we hear this all the time, uh, this expenditure will help uh, uh, both our mission and our margin. What, what's your sense?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of um, your listeners might remember this idea that was pretty popular in the 1970s and 1980s. It was this idea of the productivity paradox. And it was this observation by Herbert Simon, economist and, and computer scientist, who said, you can see uh, the uh, uh, computer age everywhere except for in the productivity um, uh, statistics. And it's, it's true, we had a, a point in time in which we were pouring lots of money into technology and we weren't seeing the requisite or or expected lift in productivity. Now, that began to change in the 1990s and the 2000s, essentially through accretion of technology over time. So I think applying that lens to our current healthcare world might be helpful because while we've invested in a lot of first-generation technologies, they haven't become interoperable, they haven't created full digitization, They haven't gotten to the level of kind of transactional liquidity that one associates with leading tech uh, industries. So uh, unfortunately, I think we're still more in the investment stage than we are in the accrual of benefits stage. Um, But I think we can be hopeful that we will get there. Hope springs eternal. Always.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. And Chris, uh, if I may, um, it seems you bring a newfound personal view to your work. You've spoken publicly about your own healthcare and uh, cancer diagnosis. Uh, I'm wondering, uh, speaking as uh, a patient as well as the uh, health information technology expert and leader that you are, how has that influenced your thinking and your observations uh, as we're seeing the uh, the big artificial information breakthroughs and and really just the state of healthcare uh, as it is in this country right now.
1: Boy, you got a minute? Um, Yeah. A a colleague and I, uh, Ed Marks, um, have been uh, in the final stages of completing a book uh, around our patient experiences. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had cancer twice. He's had a near-fatal heart attack, uh, which he got while running a triathlon, go figure, um, and a serious cancer. And look, we know the patient experience can be better and should be better. I think, um, you know, I tried to really learn from my passage through cancer, you know, I didn't wanna get cancer. The only thing you can do is res- decide how to respond, not decide whether you're gonna get it. And my decision to respond was, well, one thing was I was gonna try to learn from this, figure out what, you know, what can I learn that I wouldn't get um, if I wasn't lying in the hospital bed or in the chemotherapy infusion center and so on. So I've been trying to pay attention. And I think um, there are so many ways that we do miracles every day um, but there are so many frustrations and agonies and disappointments that come with healthcare. So what I'm hoping to do is, in a humble way, share, you know, hey, this is what happened to me, and maybe this can um, perhaps be a little bit of a guide to the next person down the road. And then whoever comes after me will write a really good book uh, that'll be the guidebook um, that people will use, maybe to make their healthcare journeys a little bit better. Well, we were just saying before the interview, uh,
0: is there a book out? Because uh, with your vast experience, uh, there there uh, there are many stories to be told, and we look forward to that and sharing that with our uh, audiences when it comes out, Chris. You know, one of the things in our practice that we've been focused in on is certainly remote monitoring of patients, and one of Mayo Clinic's innovation is that at-home hospital care program. I'm wondering if you could take us through how that works and. Again, sort of getting to the KPIs, what, what outcomes are you seeing there?
1: Yeah. So, Advanced Care at Home launched, you know, sort of just in time. We've had things like a telescope program that go back 20, 25 years. Um, but uh, we were able to, um, with partners, put together some infrastructure through Mayo Clinic platforms uh, to take care of patients with relatively high levels of acuity at home. And we really tried two different pilots in parallel. We had been sort of working on them in in parallel and so pursued both. One of which was employed uh, in um, Wisconsin for treatment of COVID patients. And uh, the analysis um, was, was quite strong that the quality of care for patients who were treated at home was the same or better than hospital care, but patients certainly um, appreciated an opportunity to be at home rather than in a hospital bed. Um, and it made bed space available for people with particularly high acuity. Mm-hmm. So that was very promising. Through our advanced care at home command center, which runs out of our Florida operation primarily, uh, we are now treating patients with reasonably high levels of acuity. It's fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, doctors and nurses round in the morning just like they would in a hospital facility There's screens on the wall and they move from patient to patient to patient they have a conversation with the patient and their caregivers um, as needed there's ways to do outreach um, there's monitoring in place at all times and of course there's an opportunity that if acuity requires that a patient can come into um, uh, one of our hospital facilities so we see more and more and more of that um, the data is really pretty interesting that's
2: interesting. Well, I think that is absolutely fabulous. And I, there certainly are patients for whom it wouldn't be appropriate, but an awful lot of patients would say, absolutely, sign me up. This would be great. Right. Right. But, you know, um, on a less dramatic level, uh, maybe uh, telehealth and primary care uh, has really boomed uh, since COVID caused uh, so many patients and providers to move to online visits. We see this in behavioral health overwhelmingly, but also in, in primary uh, medical care. And I'm curious of your uh, work at Mayo at this point and also what you're hearing at Hims. Most of the outcomes seem positive as long as you appropriately screen for what's an appropriate telehealth visit versus what really should be in person. But there's some studies that suggest there may be clinical outcomes that aren't so obvious. Uh, one was that patients who uh, went to the office for the care were more likely to receive even adhere to some medications such, mm-hmm. such as statins for cardiovascular uh, disease. I know you're uh, a tremendous research institute. What are you seeing internally, and how do we get that nuance about really where are we are going to get the best outcomes now that we don't have the threat of a uh, uh, COVID emergency hanging over our heads and can really just focus on what's the best care and yeah. where?
1: Yeah, that's fascinating about... Um... Differential compliance rates. I have not read those papers, but it it makes intuitive sense in some ways. So, you know, Mayo is not uh, our focus is on the treatment of complex and serious illness and um, uh, Doing diagnostic procedural work and other kinds of things a little bit less than our primary care uh, practice. We do primary care, but it's not really the our, our major in some ways. So I I don't know if I can comment as much on sort of that routine basis, but what I can say is we have found uh, uh, video visits to be highly effective on things like surveillance or well care or regular uh, maintenance kinds of activities where there's already an established uh, physician patient relationship. It avoids someone having to travel to one of our locations. And Mm -hmm. we do have a lot of people who travel to come to a Mayo Clinic. You know, I think about, you know, my circumstance, for example, Um, you know, occasionally I will come in and get a CT scan or a colonoscopy because that's what's needed for, for my cancer care. Um. But a fair amount of time, you know, I might have a question from my oncologist about aftercare or something. Well, there's no reason why I need to tra- would would need to travel for that purpose. I have a relationship with my oncologist. Um, so it's a pleaser for patients. In, in some ways, I wonder if it might improve compliance in some ways, Margaret. Um, the other side of the coin, I don't know, mm-hmm. because people don't wouldn't delay care because it's mm-hmm. easier for them to, do a video visit at their convenience as opposed to having to take time off of work or travel or something like that. So uh, much more to come. What do you
0: see for the future of the medical professional uh, given that we're on this cutting edge of AI and yet we might have a group that's, I won't say Luddites in this, but they've been some resistance over the years that we've seen that have, there were certainly great leaders that we know about uh, but as a field, they've they've been behind the times.
1: Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think most of our physicians, those who are might be Luddites, um, suddenly get religion when they find <laughs> something that can make their life easier and more power to them. That's the way it should be. The tools yeah. we've given them are not very good and we need to keep improving them. You know, one of the things that's really exciting are the voice vendors that are now doing this idea of ambient listening which is to have a machine listen to a conversation between a doctor and a patient, and from that, potentially generate a visit summary or an after-visit summary that um, describes the dialogue uh, between the physician and the patient. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, that is such an important point. And uh, something you said there uh, queued up a question I wanted to ask you about. All that information in the little boxes actually can be used to good end uh, when we pull it. Together, uh, you know, as healthcare providers, we've had our NPI, our National Provider Identification, uh, for years. Where do you stand, or maybe Hims stand on uh, having a national patient identifier that could be used for uniquely identifying patient information? You know, on the theory that we would be vastly uh, better prepared to uh, draw uh, informed uh, conclusions across large, enormous data sets.
1: Yeah, HIMSS has consistently come out in favor of some form of secure and private patient identifier. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a difficult subject because people feel like they're giving up some privacy should they have a number like that. And there's a number of kind of um, concerns that raise from quite legitimate to somewhat you know paranoid around those uh, concerns. And I get it. Um the fact is that we've accommodated that by using instead a combination of things we know about people that are in the public record that can help us with that identification question. But it's expensive, it's kludgy potentially there can be errors associated with mm-hmm. it. So um HIMs has been in favor of um patient identifiers.
0: You know, speaking of patients, uh they're expecting a lot uh, of of the work they uh, in this sort of new era. I'm wondering if we can keep up uh, with the the demands for efficient, effective, and elegant systems (laughs) uh, that they're looking for. What's your sense about it as you think about it from having been a patient? We're all patients, but uh, from that lens, do you think our institutions are really uh, as nimble as they should be? uh, Do they have the Uh, ability, at least in the healthcare space, they seem probably a little more efficient in the consumer space, but how how do you think we're meeting patients' demands?
1: Well, you know, Mark, I used to think that healthcare was about the slowest and worst (laughs) digital industry until I recently tried to get a, I'm in the process of getting a a mortgage to buy a second property. Holy smokes. Um, (laughs) I didn't think it could be worse than healthcare, but it turns out it can Finally, uh, we
0: we have somebody we beat.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, there's so much more that we can do to make our systems more effective and efficient for people, especially because healthcare is emotional, mm-hmm. it's complex, it's personal. You know, um, it's sometimes difficult to you know uh, encounter it, to, to take on board everything that you need to know about your health. And and I know a little bit about your work. I've been an admirer of CHC. And, and the kind of work that you do. Um, and, and it doesn't matter if it's behavioral, if it's a common chronic, or if it's some sort of acute thing. Um, Healthcare is hard for most people to understand and they don't fully comprehend it in lots of ways. So I think the, the bar needs to be higher and we can do better in making good systems for patients and for the dialogue between patient, provider, and other caregivers.
2: Chris, thank you for joining us. And thanks to our audience. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including a way to sign up for email updates. Our address is chcradio.com. And Chris, again, thank you so much for joining us and sharing all your insights and experience with us.
1: Thanks, Margaret. Thanks, Mark. All right,
0: great. And and make sure we get a copy of that book so we can profile it. You got it. All All right. Have a good one. Thank you so much.
2: This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of Conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.